We've been going through the seven letters to the seven churches. It's, it's a complete series, so it's real important that you, you catch up with the ones that you've missed if you haven't, because it really goes together. Um, and uh, as we see, these seven letters form a complete look at the church history in totality. We've seen that the first letter, well, I'll get into that in just a minute. Let's go ahead and pray, open up our Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, and we'll get started. Jesus, I thank you so much for dying for us on the cross, for giving us hope and a new life, forgiving our sins. And Lord, I pray that we would look to you and trust you and you alone uh, for all that we need. Lord, we are the problem, you are the solution, and we need you more than we even think. Lord, we need to be in your word and abide in you and trust you and you alone. Not ourselves, Lord, not a system and not this world's way of doing things. We need you, Jesus. Help us to keep a heart that is pure towards you and help us to know when we're allowing other things to influence us besides you. Jesus, we love you, and we pray that you'd help us to see you in a new way today. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 So we are, again, we're in, we are in chapter 2 of Revelation, looking at the church of Thyatira. I want to review real quick the couple churches that we've gone through already. First was Ephesus. That was uh, the church of the apostolic time, or, or in other words, that first church right after Jesus died when the apostles were cruising around the world, teaching everyone how to do this whole church thing, and they were great, especially at doctrine, because they actually knew Jesus and walked around with him, and, but they fell in what area? Love. They, they left their first love. They forgot that it was all about loving Jesus and loving others, and they got really into what we believe and what we know, and, and that, that caused Jesus to come to them and say, hey, guys, you need to repent and return to your first love. Then we saw the church in Smyrna, and that spoke to us about the persecuted church. The next time in church history, from about 70 AD, 100 AD, through 313. And during that time, there was 10 waves of persecution where Christians were killed systematically throughout the world, over 5 million Christians, and then figuring for population today, that would be about 500 million Christians being killed during those couple hundred years. But during that time, the church grew and grew and was strong. And in fact, it was the greatest church because Jesus had nothing even wrong to say about them. He said they hid it exactly how they were supposed to. They were giving their lives, and Jesus was totally happy with that church. It was illegal to be a Christian, but yet Christianity grew more during that time than at any time during the history of the world. So that was that persecution. But in 313, last week, we saw a great change happen in the church with what guy? Constantine, right. Constantine came, and he said, guess what? I'm... A Christian, and I became the emperor, so now everyone's Christians. And he made Christianity mandatory for everyone to be Christian. And so we saw that this was a great, almost plan of Satan to join. If you can't beat the church, join them. And we saw that Satan convinced the church that power was a better way to go. And so the church became very political. In fact, the entire government 
was centered on the church. And, and so they became this corrupt church. And Pergamos was the name of that church. And what does Pergamos mean? A bad marriage or a, a, a perverted marriage. Per is the word unacceptable marriage, right? Per is where we get pervert. It's a, it's a bad marriage. It's a bad connection. And, and it became very political and about power. See, all these priests who were priests of Zeus and pagan priests, all of a sudden it was illegal for them to have their jobs. So what did they do? Well, they don't know how to make tents and they don't know how to do anything productive for society. So they said, well, I'm going to go be a priest in the Christian church now. And so these pagan priests become priests in the church. And they brought a lot of baggage with them. So over the next few hundred years, the church until uh, what we're going to see now is the church we're going to get to now is starts in about 600 AD, 600. So the, this compromised church went from 313 to 600. And, and what happened is they continued to gain power. They, they gained all the power in Europe. And then they needed to maintain that power. Absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Power corrupts. The church began to grow corrupt, and when we hit 600 AD, the church is now universally corrupt. Very sad, sad, horrible time in the history of the church. Now, there are some faithful men and women during this time, but honestly, they're a remnant. They're few and far between. And I think most of the people probably genuinely sought God, but the leadership gets really messed up. So the time period that we're looking at now is from 600 to 1517. This is the Middle Ages. This is the Dark Ages of the church. Although remnants of the church that we see are going to study today exist all the way through to today, and we're going to see they're around today. Um. And it's going to last all the way through to the coming of Jesus. And this, we're entering a new time in these seven letters. The last four of these letters are to churches that still exist today. And we see this because Jesus mentions in these last four letters his coming in each of these last four. The first three, he doesn't mention his coming. Why? Because those ages are done. The apostles aren't around anymore. Okay, the persecuted church, as far as the whole thing, Smyrna is not here anymore. And this politically corrupt church also isn't here anymore. It is now morphed into what we are going to see today is this um, Catholic church. He's going to talk to each of these churches about his second coming, these last four. So the first three, he doesn't talk about second coming because they're not around. But these last four, he mentions it. In each one of these last four letters, very, very interesting. First three ages are over and done. They had very definite endings, but Jesus doesn't mention his coming to them. So we get now to this church in Thyatira. And before we read it, I just want you to tell you the word Thyatira means continual feast. Continual feast. And that's very important. Because we've seen the meaning of each of these churches has been, has been pretty vital to our understanding of what Jesus is telling them. Pergamos was an was a, a inappropriate marriage. Smyrna was myrrh. Myrrh was something that was crushed. So that persecuted tr- 
church was crushed and God loved the smell that was coming out of them. Well, here we have a continual feast, and Jesus has some things to say about that. So let's go ahead and read Revelation chapter 2, verse 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I cast... I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now I, to you I say and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put no other burden on you, but hold fast the, uh, what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, I will give him power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, I also, as I also received from my father. And I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, in history, Thyatira was known for their guilds, and guilds were kind of like unions. Anyone in a union? Got Scott and his metal workers union, right? Metal, what is it called? Local nine. All right, there you go. And these unions, these guilds, uh, were really important there in Thyatira, and they were all, they, a lot of them were specialized in making clothing, and especially the color purple. How many of you are wearing purple today? We got actually one, two, three, four, five. Representing. You didn't even know today, and yet you wore purple. Good job. <laughs> well, purple was a very fancy color back then, and, and it, people didn't really even see it that much. And so they had this special thing that they had to do with these fish and all kinds of stuff. Lydia, in the book of Acts, was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. So they, they knew that these, these different guilds, they knew how to work together, and they knew how to, uh, they, they gathered together in these guilds to gain power and to maintain their power. That's why you form a union, so that the bosses just can't pay you whatever they want to pay you. You form a union so that you can be stronger. Okay, This is important because we see that, that that plays into what's going on here in the, time, in the future time. Again, Thyatira means continual feast. Continual feast. Around the year 600, the church started to make concessions to the other religions around them in Europe. Remember all these pagan priests that joined the church in 300? Well, they didn't just give up all their beliefs. They, they were pushing continually to get these, 
things that they did into the church because they liked them. They felt, the church felt, that they were losing power over Europe. And so they made some new rules and they started to invite some, they started to open their minds up to the way other people did things and they lost a lot of their purity. So to make the pagan people more comfortable with the church and to just make sure that they were holding control over people, they set up this thing called the Pontifus Maximus, which was taken directly from the pagan Babylonian religion. That was the name of the leader of the pagan Babylonian religion, was the Pontifus Maximus. And they made this position in the church. They called it the Bishop of Rome. They gave him the title Pontifus Maximus so that the pagan people would feel more comfortable with the church bossing them around. He was to be the interpreter and the go-between between men and gods in the Babylonian system. And they let them wear tall hats because that's what they did in the Babylonian system, where they worshipped the fish god Dagon, and they made their hats to look like a fish. And that's exactly why they invited the Pontifus Maximus to wear that hat. They said, oh, it's okay, we'll just call it Jesus. We'll just say, we'll call him a pope, and we'll let him wear the tall hats just like they did, just kind of in memory of when we used to worship Dagon. And they called it a holy see, the, the, the place where the Pope would sit. They called it the holy see because that's what it was called in the Babylonian religious system. That was the Babylonian thing to do, including burning incense. That was another Babylonian thing to do. They tried to Christianize all these pagan things, like Ishtar was the celebration of fertility where they would take eggs and dye them. And so in about the year 600, the church was like, hey, let's just call it Easter and let's make it about Jesus, but we'll keep the eggs. And that makes sense. They took Saturnalia, which was the worship of Saturn, the God, and they made, it was always on December 25th. And they just said, hey, let's just celebrate, we'll call it Christ Mass and we'll celebrate Jesus on that day, but we're still going to decorate trees, cut down a tree and decorate it, and we're, which is how they would worship Saturnalia. Very interesting. We're going to do a study another day on whether, why I have a Christmas tree, because I do like Christmas trees. It's about Jesus now, but we need to understand the roots. It was worshiping Saturn. And they took idols, because they loved idols. These pagan priests loved idols, and so we brought idols into the church called them icons, lots of statues, lots of, lots of stained glass, lots of pretty buildings, crowns and robes, all these things that are not in the Bible. They're not there. But the biggest part of the Babylonian mystery religion that was adopted into the church at this time was the mother-child relationship of worship. They, they, in the Babylonian mystery religion, they worshipped Baal and Ashtaroth. When it went its way down into Egypt, it was called Iosis and Osiris and Isis. 
And, and there's always the story of this virgin mother who would give birth to a son, but the greatest of this was the mother, was more honored than the son. The mother was more honored than the son. And, and the church, they mixed all this stuff in, and it be, they became more open-minded because they wanted to have power over everybody. They wanted to bring it all together. So within 300 years, the church doesn't look anything like it did in the book of Acts. And after 600 years, it basically looks the opposite. The church in the book of Acts was humble, was weak, was meek, was devoted to the word of God. All those things are the opposite now. Very interesting. They are worshiping a woman now. After 600 years, they are worshiping a woman. Mary is her name. They're lighting candles. The Bible doesn't say anything about that. If you have a, a, someone die, they say, here, light a candle because they're in purgatory. Well, where'd you hear about purgatory? Not in the Bible. The Pontifus Maximus told us about it. So here, pay us some money, light a candle, and they can get out of purgatory earlier. None of which is in the Bible. They have rulers, they have holy seas, they have holy water, they have strange rituals and weird celebrations. That's what the church looks like now. Where is any of that in the Bible? They even started sacrifices again. Like, wait, what are you talking about? Yeah, it's called mass. Mass is a ceremony where Jesus is sacrificed over and over and over again. He's never risen and alive. He's always dying for your sins. Over. He's never victorious over sin and death. He's suffering over. And this is the mass. He's constantly dying and, subs and suffering. And, this, and so they made up this whole doctrine called transubstantiation where they believe that the, the communion is the actual, becomes the actual body and blood of Jesus to be sacrificed over and over, and you have to bring it into you and eat it, and it becomes his body in you over and over again, and somehow that magically cleanses you of your sin. But it's wrong. It's not true. Because it's continually sacrificing him over and over. And we'll see a verse that will help us with this a little later. And they teach, they began teaching at this point, that it doesn't matter if you understand anything about Jesus. As long as you go to Mass, you'll be saved. As long as you give us a little bit of money, you'll be saved. As long as you let us boss you around, you will be saved. You didn't have to understand justification or sanctification, Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. Didn't need to know it at all. It's almost like the priests got tired of teaching people doctrine. And instead, they started to trust this entity of the church. And as long as you belong to our club and let us boss you around, you're going to be okay. And that's, that's the, what started to happen. So they didn't read their Bibles. In fact, they translated it into a different language that nobody could understand except the priests. Latin. Who was speaking Latin? Nobody in 600 AD, except the priests. And that's what all the Bibles were written in. So they literally took the Bible away from people so they couldn't read it. They, they taught people that they could buy indulgences to sin and that the way to get your sin taken care of was to pay the church money and then your sin would go away. Where would it go? Shh, don't talk about that. It just goes away. 
They grew cold. They grew corrupt. They ended up being murderers and idolaters. Not all of them, but much of the leadership for sure. It's crazy. And I don't even try to defend this church because they don't deserve it. They, they are a mess. And I can't believe how God was so gracious to this church because I look at them and I'm like, they don't deserve God's grace. And then I look at me and I realize, and this is where we need to be today, that we could easily get this messed up in our hearts when we leave the word of God, we start to think that we need to control our lives. We can easily just go right back here. And many churches in our city have gone right back to the same errors of this church. So we need to look at this with humility, not with judgment saying they're all going to hell and we're so much better than them. But we need to judge what they did, what they thought, why they did the things they did. And Jesus here does it for us. He doesn't even make us figure it out. He says, these are the things I hate. These are the things that they were doing that were wrong. Let's look at it. And just so you know, I'm an equal opportunity church basher. Next week is the Protestant church's turn. And they actually have nothing good said about them by Jesus. But we're also going to learn that we have roots in the Protestant church. We also have roots in the Catholic church. But we are not, hopefully, just part of what it's going to talk about as the Protestant church. Pretty interesting stuff. All right, verse 18. To the angel of church in Thyatira write, these things says the Son of God. Jesus emphasizes that he's the Son of God, not just man. His mother, a human, doesn't really matter that much. (laughs) What really makes Jesus better than everybody and everything is the fact that he was the Son of God which means he was the perfect representation of God, the perfect messenger for God. He was God. He, in human flesh, true, but the fact that matters is that he was God, the son of God. He's the one who deserves our our attention. He's the only one we should pray to. (laughs) Ha ha, why? In 1 Timothy 2.5, it says, there is one God, And there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So in Timothy, he's okay calling him a man. But what Jesus wants this church to understand is that I am God. Why are you so focused on my mom? She's just a man. He starts right, just just throws it out there right away. This is what the Son of God says. Very important for us to see that. All of this praying to saints and praying to Mary business is wrong. It's wrong. It's infectious. It's, it's ineffective. And it's sin. And their entire religious structure is based on it. How could they implement something that's so anti-Bible and anti-Jesus? Well, they said, well, the Pope told us we could do it. The Pope said it worked. Well, where did he get that authority? Um, he told us that he had the authority. Well, what did the Bible say? No, it doesn't say that. How far do you think a bridge is going to stretch if it's built on jello? That's what praying to saints is about. How long is that bridge going to last? 
praying to Mary and the saints doesn't accomplish anything. We'll get more into that in the future. It says, who, who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like fine brass. This is the description of Jesus that Jesus himself is highlighting for us. And what that means is that he's, I'm going to be the judge here. I'm going to judge you guys. I'm going to penetrate your outside with my eyes of fire. And, and I, I got feet like fine brass, which means I am pure. Bronze is a highly refined metal um, that, that's been through the fire a lot. So it's pure. And he says, so I, I'm the one that judges what's right and wrong, not the Pope. I decide. I tell you. And where do you find out what Jesus thinks about something? The Bible. So why do you hide the Bible and keep it away from people? Because you don't want people to know what's in it. And you want to control those people and them to listen to you. In fact, oh man, I'm getting a little riled up. I need to calm down. There was an article just recently where the Pope said, it's dangerous for you to have a personal relationship with Jesus and it's dangerous for you to read the Bible because you don't know how to properly interpret it. And this um, is not okay. Verse 19, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. So here, Jesus actually is pretty complimentary towards them. He knows uh, that they have a lot of good social programs. And the Roman Catholic Church did have a lot of good social problems. They, programs. They took care of the poor. They did some really good things. I, I, I'm happy. They, they started hospitals like you wouldn't believe all around Europe. They cared for the poor. All great things. And they only grew in these efforts. They only got better at it. They did good. But Jesus says, nevertheless, all that's great and fine and dandy, Go be a Democrat, I don't care. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. The main problem isn't your politics. The main problem isn't what you've been doing. What you're doing is fine. The main problem is you allow this woman Jezebel, he says, who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. So in this church, in the real Thyatira, they, they had some sort of evil lady. Probably, you know, I read some commentaries that said it was probably the pastor's wife <laughs> who was teaching them to commit sexual immorality and idolatry. And, and the word here, uh, eating uh, things sacrificed to idols, it, literally in the Greek is eating idolatry. Eating idolatry. What does Thyatira mean again? Continual feast. There's something about eating going on here and idolatry that's really interesting. And what happened in 600 AD through 1517 is that they made communion an idol. They, made the, they called it the Eucharist. And they made it this thing that was worshipped. They would say, live any way that you want to live and sin and sin some more and then come take communion and it all goes away. Communion fixes it all. And that's why you have mafia members knocking off people and then saying, I got to go to communion. I'll be right back. <laughs> Is that not in every movie? Are they not all Catholic? <laughs> mafia, hookers, doesn't matter. They all 
did the same thing in this religion. Sin and sin and sin. Don't worry about it. Just go to, go to church, get your communion, get it all washed away, and go out and do it again the next day. So who was this lady Jezebel? Well, she was a horrible, evil lady back in the book of 1 Kings. She thought she was beautiful. She'd spend all day putting on makeup, paint on her eyes, and getting all dressed up. And she was the pagan daughter of a pagan king who married an Israeli king. She was from, uh, I forget where she's from, but where they worshipped Baal. And she loved Baal. Baal. He was this pagan god. She loved him. Her dad loved him. And she brought in this false religious system when she married the king of Israel. She brought with her 450 of her prophets, people that liked you know, Baal too and knew about worshiping Baal. She brought them into Israel and she gave them places of authority in Israel. And so the Israel kind of had to accept her because the king married her. And he was a horribly evil king too. But he married her. And so the people are all just like, well, is this just life now? Is this what we got to deal with? Well, Elijah one day challenged her in 1 Kings. And he said, uh, well, let me back up. She took all the prophets of God and she slaughtered them. Uh, But one guy took a hundred of them and hid them in caves and protected them. So basically, Elijah's the only one left and she's been hunting him down for two years. He's been hiding in a widow's house. And one day he he challenges her because God tells him she's got to, this has got to end. Okay, the people are falling for this. And uh, so Elijah, Elijah says, bring your 450 prophets of Baal up to the top of Mount Carmel, and we're going to have a challenge. And your prophets, you know, will set up two altars, and your prophets, you get to go first. If your God, Baal, brings fire down from heaven and consumes the, the sacrifice, then he's God, and everyone should worship you, and you can kill me. But I'll do it, and if my God hears me and calls fire down from heaven and consumes the sacrifice then um, we get to kill you and, and we will worship God and you guys all have to get out of here. And they're like, okay, we'll do it. And so they set this whole deal up. All the people of Israel are on top of the mountain watching them. I've been on top of this mountain. I've seen where this happened. It's crazy. And they're all watching and Elijah says, you guys go first. So they set up the deal and then they start dancing around and calling upon Baal. They start cutting themselves and poking themselves until they bleed to try to get God's attention. That's important. I want you to remember that. At about noon, Elijah starts mocking them and said, maybe your God's busy. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Just call a little louder. And they, so they do, and they start cutting them. It's all crazy. Well, story goes, he, he gets his turn. He douses three things of water, big things of water on top of it. He says a simple prayer, God does fire. And then he says, get them. And so all the people just get these uh, 450 prophets of Baal and kill them right there in the Brook Kidron. Very crazy story. The part I bring out is that they like to cut themselves and to hurt themselves in order to get God's attention. That's what worship of Baal, that's what this Jezebel lady brings in. Just like, have you guys ever seen what they do in Mexico, South America, some of the real hardcore Catholic places where they crucify themselves, 
to celebrate Easter, where they, they whip themselves. If you've ever seen the movie The Mission, he does penance for his sins, where he whips himself over and over and over again because a priest told him to, that that would cause him to get forgiveness for his sins. Horribly wrong. That's what the prophets of Baal do to get God's attention. What do we do to get God's attention? Yes, we repent, we pray, we call upon the Lord in humility and faith. Not trying to make it up to God, not trying to fix it and suffer ourselves. No, Jesus suffered. When Jesus is the center of your attention and what he did, you don't have to go do something to add to it. What could you possibly do to add to what Jesus did? Nothing. Not in the Catholic Church. He's looking, God's looking for humility and faith, not for people to cut themselves and hurt themselves. What does humility and faith look like? It looks like humbly trusting God's word. And that's the problem. If you don't have God's word, and if you don't trust God's word, you have to try to come up with a way for God to hear you. And most often it looks like a pen, uh, uh, you know, hurting yourself or penance, these things. Well, Jezebel was also known for stealing land. She stole it from a guy named Naboth in 1 Kings. And she gave that land to the king that she was trying to influence. Um, and he got very rich because of that. And it's very sad that the inquisitions during this time, which were horribly evil and wicked, were really all about getting land and wealth. And even today, the Catholic Church is the wealthiest nation in all the world when you factor in debt loads. They have more land and resources monetarily than any other nation in the world. None of these things you see in the Catholic Church you see in the Bible. It's very sad. The robes, the fancy clothes, all the systems of how to get forgiven, all these things, Mary and the saints. And, you know, as I was driving through Denver, there's Mary, uh, there's the Queen of Heaven Church right there off of a spear. Have you seen it? It's Queen of Heaven Church, Catholic Church. Queen of Heaven. They must never read their Bibles. Because in Jeremiah 7 and, verse, and chapter 44, chapter 7 and chapter 44, twice, Jeremiah talks about how evil the queen of heaven is. When I was in Orlando, you're driving through Orlando, there's this giant, enormous church called Mary, Queen of the Universe Church. It's ridiculous. Oh, yeah, we don't worship Mary. Really? The queen of heaven, obviously, go read Jeremiah 7 and 44. You'll see what God thinks about the queen of heaven. But let's think about it. What did Mary say in the Bible? What were the last recorded words of Mary? Well, it was at a wedding in Cana at the first miracle of Jesus. The very first thing Jesus ever did that was cool. Mary said, this is my son, do what he says. That's the last thing she ever said. Don't pay attention to me. This is my son. Do what he says. Do whatever he says. Those who think they can pray to Mary need to read the Bible. Jesus 
at another time, put her in her place. She wanted to come and speak to him and interrupt his ministry. And they came to him and said, hey, your mom's outside. Why don't you come talk to her? And he's like, who's my mother and my brothers? Those who do the will of God. Those who are caring about God's things. Those are my... Now, he's not saying my mom's horrible. He was just saying she needs to know her place. My kingdom comes first. My ministry comes first. What I'm doing comes first. Then I'll come talk to her. That's how Jesus talked about her. Very crazy. Now, she's still the greatest woman to ever live and the most blessed woman ever. But she's just a woman. She is not the perpetual virgin. She is not the co-redemptrix. These are all names for her. It's not even the real Mary that people are praying to. They're praying to Jezebel, Jesus says. Jesus says they're praying to Jezebel. Not me. Jesus says this is Jezebel. And she's seducing. And it says that uh, Jesus says they, they go to this woman, Jezebel, and she teaches and seduces my servants to commit sexual immorality and things sacrificed to idols. And how does this really work? Well, Pope John Paul, you guys remember him? He said he was more committed to Mary than to Jesus. That he loved her more than he loved Jesus. That's sin. That is spiritual adultery. It's so not okay. Anyone who uh, does what he says cannot be saved. It's, it's, it's not worshiping or serving the true God of heaven. It's not. Because God doesn't share his glory with any man, does he? Or woman. You can't do that. Verse 21. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual morality, and she did not repent. So Jesus let this church go through the centuries. From 600 to 1500, Jesus showed unbelievable patience with this church. He worked, he blessed people, he started uh, bringing revival. He gave them time to start reading the Bible, and people did. People figured it out. They started reading the Bible, and those priests who actually did read the Bible and faithfully taught their people, their parishes, uh, what the Bible said, they were okay. God, God used them and blessed them. I think of people like uh, St. Patrick and uh, other great missionaries throughout this time that really God did an amazing work. Anyone who did read the Bible was blessed and used, but they were also usually killed by the Catholic Church. Um. They taught people, the church did, that they couldn't really understand the Bible. Only the priest could interpret it, and only the pope could really know exactly what anything meant. The common people couldn't be trusted because the church wanted power. But God is so patient, he says, I was giving them time to repent. These things are really wrong. But there are some things in my life that are really wrong too. And I'm very thankful as I look back at this church, that God is patient with me and gives me time to repent. That he's not impatient like I can be with other people, that I can be with my kids, that I can be with my wife. And I'm glad God's not like that with me. Verse 22, Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. wonder why he says that unless they repent of their deeds. Jesus is saying that if you're not 
really saved, if your relationship with God is all about your adulterous relationship with religion and not really about me, and you think it's all about your deeds and your works, that you're not saved. And those who are not saved are not going to escape the great tribulation, he's saying. They need to repent of this horrible idea they have that they can earn their way to grace, which is exactly the point of many things in the Catholic Church, that you have to earn and your works gain this grace for you. If you stay in this system, when I come back, Jesus says, you will go into the great tribulation. If your heart is connected to this system and not to me, you're going into the tribulation. See, he mentions it. It's real. For the true believers, even in this church, we're going to be raptured away from, we're kept from this great tribulation. It's very clear scripturally. We will not go into it. And we're going to see in these last four letters, the same thing is said to each one of the churches. I will keep you from the great hour of tribulation. I will keep you from tribulation, out of. You're not going to be there. But this church, ooh, you're going to be there unless you repent of your deeds. Those who worship Mary and trust in their works, like most of the Catholic Church does, are going to go right into the tribulation. And I hope that during that time that they will have their eyes opened to who the real Savior is and that they will see him and call upon him. And I hope that many of them will get saved. Because in the tribulation, all of these ignorant superstitions will not matter they will experience the sickbed that Jesus is talking about. They will realize that they're not okay, that they're not spiritually healthy. And, and that's what I hope That's what I hope it takes for many of them to repent is when God does bring sickness into their lives. And they say, you know what? I was, I've been wrong. And Jesus, it's all about you. Verse 23 says, I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give each one of you according to your works. Jesus sees the heart. He sees the heart. And he mentions their works here. Remember, the Catholic Church has always been really into works, and, and they've struggled with faith alone. They didn't understand how the whole faith thing worked. But it's only the grace of Jesus that makes our works acceptable to God. It's only when you're serving God out of grace and faith that he accepts what you do. You can try as hard as you want to please God and serve God and give all your efforts and go to Mass as much as you can, but it doesn't mean you're accepted by God because only faith makes you accepted by God. Even today, we see many social platforms and programs in this church, but God says they're all tainted. They're all tainted. They don't work. And he says, I'm going to judge you according to your works. Now in verse 24, now I say to you in the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. So he's saying, all of those in Thyatira who really love me, you're cool. You're cool. Anyone who's not into the game and the idol worship and the pagan cultic practices, none of this applies to you. And we know that there are some people in the Catholic Church today who really love Jesus, right? 
And, and we can rejoice that God's not putting any a burden. He doesn't say you have to, he doesn't put anything on them. He just says, if you love me, cool, you're good. Um, the depths of Satan it mentions here is very, very interesting, and it's a clue to the roots of all this fake religious system. We don't have time, probably about four or five hours, I could spend talking on this phrase, the depths of Satan, because it goes into the whole ancient Babylonian mystery religion and how they wanted to uh, rebel against God at every point. But it basically, it says the roots of all of this stuff is satanic, it's the depths of Satan, and his whole deal was rebellion, and I'm okay without God, and I don't need God. And so it, it follows in that same path. And if you want to see why different things are wrong in the Catholic Church, you just look at, is this confessing your need for God, or is this saying, I can do things that make God happy? Am I accepting what God did, or am I worried about what I do? One is satanic, and one is Christ-like and godly. It's easy to say which, what's right and what's wrong. It's deep in the character of this, this, this depths of Satan. Uh, okay. The deep things, very interesting, is also what the Catholic Church came to call the things that the Pope would tell people. When he would reveal something, they would call those the deep things. Very interesting. Verse 25, he says, Behold fast what you have till I come. Jesus' instruction is to hold on to me. Hold on to me. Till I come, he says. There's that key phrase. Talks about the second coming of Christ. He says, look for me. Keep your eyes on me. Not in a ritual. Not in a program. Keep your eyes on me. Not in a game. Keep your eyes on me. Not in a religion. Keep your eyes on me. Not in anything else but me. Do you know the average American Catholic goes to three masses a year? That's the average. It's a game. That is not a lifestyle. They're not even committed to it. And the hardcore ones are usually listening to the Pope. So this, this is a major problem. This is a major problem. It's a game with made-up rules that don't even matter. Verse 26, And he who overcomes and keeps my works, Jesus says, keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power, over the nations. Ah, that thing that the Catholic Church wanted so bad. Power over the nations to become the Holy Roman Empire. Jesus says, ah, oh, it's all found in me, guys. My works. Verse 27, he shall rule them with a rod of iron and they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel as I have received from my father. So he says, these are those who overcome. Well, again, what is overcoming? We've seen that in every single letter. Overcoming means being connected to Jesus. He's saying, if you don't get sucked into this crazy, pagan, false doctrines and all this merry worship and stuff, if you just connect with me, Jesus says, my works and not yours, you're going to be okay and you're going to find real power. It will work out to what you were thinking it was, but it's only through me. This church wanted to rule and Jesus can and he will make that happen, but they wanted to do it out of their flesh and not through the Spirit. That's going to happen during the millennium. The church is going to rule the world, but it was that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And this church tried with all their might to rule over Europe. And they succeeded for like a thousand years. 
but it was the most horrible thousand years in the history of the church. Because what was the result of their human efforts, their fleshly efforts? Death, disease, sorrow, sadness, horrible, nothing that Jesus wanted to bring. And that's what happens when we do things out of our own flesh. When we want to fix our relationships out of our own efforts, in our own strength. That's what happens. We can be part of fixing everything, and we will be. But not until Jesus comes back. And we cannot legislate morality. We can't think that we can do this again. Jesus will use us to fix it all, but it's after he comes. It's in his timing. Verse 28, And I will give him the morning star. And he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, what is the morning star? Jesus has already told us in chapter 1 that he is the morning star. Not his mother. Himself. She doesn't matter. The Pope doesn't matter. Jesus is the only one we want. And he's the only one that we get. So, question. How can we let Jezebel into our church? The spirit of Jezebel. Or into our lives? What, what the main problem with this church is that they wanted to connect with their culture and they wanted to be like the people that were all around them. They really wanted to be able to control what was going on. We can't let our culture start to tell us what we should look like. Is that not what the seeker-sensitive church is doing? Well, Bible study shouldn't be that long because I get tired and I really need to go have brunch. The culture says that. We're the church. We, when we want to impress our culture with how beautiful our music is or how wonderfully eloquent our speaking is or how we dress or how we look, <laughs> we, we are straying quickly from the Lord. When we get impressed by them and how they do conferences and how they teach and we try to imitate them and, oh, they did it like this on Dr. Phil and they did it like this at this TED talk that I talked, that I listened to, and it was really effective, we stray from the Lord. We don't have to do it the way that they do it. What should our music sound like? What should our art look like? How should we communicate how should we do church? The Catholic Church took ideas and polls and, and figured out how the world liked to do church, and they did it like that. And they didn't read the Bible. What we must do is look in the book of Acts and do what the Bible says. That's, how, that's our only instruction book. What else do we have? Music, it should be joyful, period. Unto the Lord. It doesn't matter what instruments you use or beats. Next week, I'm going to lead worship with a kazoo. Actually, Jared is. I, I told Jared that he is. Art, if we have art, it should be just to honor and glorify the Lord. If we're communicating, it should just be loving encouragement, if we need to rebuke someone, if we sh it should be with peace and seasoned with grace. I mean, 
this is the way God told us to do things. You know, when the world wants to get things done at political rallies, how do they try to convince people? It's usually anger and passion. Not the way Jesus has for us. How do we are supposed to do church? That was a terrible sentence. How are we supposed to do church? What did they do in Acts? We should do the same thing. They prayed, they worshiped, and they studied the word of God. When they went out, they surrendered to God's will. That's what we see. In none of these things are we supposed to fellowship or unite with people who don't believe God's word or submit to God's word. It was belief in God's word that that kind of brought you into the club of the church. It wasn't so that we could boss you around because the Bible says the leaders of the church are supposed to be the greatest servants and the lowest of all, doing everything for the people, never receiving from them their best. So that's where we see the church really went astray. Instead of you taking first communion or first baptism in order to get into the club, it should be, do you believe the word of God? Do you really seek the word of God to be governed by the word of God? If you do, that's your entrance in. Faith is how we get in. When we follow Jesus by doing what he says in the Bible, we overcome. And if you want to get universally corrupt, which... I have to say, the title of this week's sermon is the best that I've ever come up with. It's a universally corrupt church, so the Catholic literally means universal. (laughs) Whoa, works on so many levels. Okay. If we want to get universally corrupt, follow what men say, set up a system that places men in exalted places and gives them the same authority as the word of God. That's how we can get corrupt. So we could go down that path, and you guys could start just listening to me as the word of God and, and like making me decide what you should do in your life. Or you can just read the word of God for yourself, study it, and do what it says. Those are the two options we have. So that is our study and our time here in the book of Thyatira, in Revelation. Let's go ahead and stand. We are going to take communion today, even though it's not magic even though it's not going to wash away your sins. Because we know the only thing that washes away our sins is true faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in believing what Jesus did on the cross, that he was the substitute and sacrifice for you. If you believe that, then you believe the word of God. And you have every right to be called a child of God. You take that by faith and say, I believe it. And so then we do take communion in obedience to him and and remembering what he did for us. And so the bread reminds us of his broken body, how he gave that for us. The wine, not wine, the grape juice, (laughs) reminds us of his new life that flows into us. These are symbolic. They're real, grape juice and real bread, but they're symbolic. And, uh, And it's by faith that they become real, and, and that's what we do here now. We're going to sing one song, one song, two songs? Two songs. We get extra blessed. Because our works are a blessing for us, right? Right. Didn't listen to anything I said. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Let's go ahead and pray. 
Father, we rejoice in knowing the word of God and being able to understand and see your, your very specific message. Lord, I pray that you give us love for those people in our lives that may be into this um, false way of dealing with you. I pray you give us wisdom and boldness to talk with them. Lord, not to try to convince them or change their life, but Lord, to bring them into a real, true, genuine relationship with you, Jesus. You are all that we need. Lord, forgive us for where we let things become more important than you or equal important to you, or we just somehow justify something that we do that may not be biblical. Uh, Lord, I pray that your word would be exalted and that we would remember that you are the Son of God. We don't need anything but you, Jesus. We trust in you. We put our hope and, and everything on you, Lord. And Lord, some of us are hurting and need healing right now. And I pray that you, Jesus, you alone would touch them and you would bring healing to their lives. We pray for our dear sister, Rhea, who I know is hurting right now and with sickness. And we pray that you would be merciful to her and you would bring healing into her body. Lord, we thank you so much that we can drink deeply of your spirit, that you will give it to all who ask. I thank you so much. We don't have to beat ourselves in order to earn your favor. Lord, that we can just respond to your offer uh, of, of your son. And we will be given the morning star when we, when we ask, Lord. Thank you so much for all these things. We worship you, Jesus, now in your name we pray. Amen.